several of y'all named all of the um, new consciousness to what's present in our world um, that's coming up. And I know for many people, this kind of um, tidal wave of, of awareness, of difficulty, of challenge, it's really hard. And I've heard several people describe it in a way um, that starts this kind of anxiety kind of chronically being triggered, starting to remind me of chronic pain. Um, instead of a physical pain, um, many people are starting to have a sort of chronic emotional pain, uh, which of course physically hurts in the body. So out of sitting with this, I just went this weekend to Lynchburg um, to be with my daughter there and, and just um, felt it at so many levels on that trip. Um, it really started, made me start thinking of an article that I've had for years. Um, it's an article called One Button at a Time by a woman named Darlene Cohen. Um, and I always save it to share with people who have chronic pain who take my class because it is such a useful article for knowing, for finding more resourcefulness for living with chronic pain. But everything she says in this article about how she learned to live well, even with the debilitating pain of rheumatoid arthritis, which is what she's writing about in the article. It's really useful for working with chronic emotional pain as well. Her basic approach is to always see beyond the confines of her pain. Always allow a strengthening um, of herself to come through an appreciative practice of opening mind, eyes, heart, um, to see all that's present in a moment, not just the pain. So I really wanna share um, um, her words of wisdom um, from this article for us to consider how we meet any moment in life. So Cohen had been a serious Zen meditation student for many years before she developed rheumatoid arthritis. And she writes that initially feeling just overcome by unremitting pain, she initially found herself feeling like all of those years had been wasted. Um, meditation practice was what was supposed to make um, um, all of, you know, meeting rheumatoid arthritis go well and easy and like take care of it. Um, and, and it didn't. Um, but she said it really didn't take long for her to realize that she was wrong, that she began to uncover multiple ways that her practice actually was supporting this new life with pain when she opened her eyes to see what was going on. She says, first of all, though ravished by pain and disease, my body was deeply settled. 
my body had been developing the tremendous stability associated with regular sitting practice. That's kind of a radical idea. Um, and it's certainly something that um, is coming clear to me in my own life, uh, that there's a way when we stick with this practice uh, long enough that even when things are up and triggered, that there's a way that we can notice a grounding right in our bodies um, that is supportive. And to be able to feel the grounding, even in the midst of the tsunami wave or the trigger, that's a powerful thing. Um, so I like the way she says that, my body had been developing the tremendous stability associated with regular sitting practice. So even though she was consumed, she called it overwhelmed and consumed by pain, she found she was able to let go, surrender into what she calls the physicality of the moment. And that meant opening to all of the physical felt sensations in any given moment. I discovered that wherever I looked, there were experiences other than pain waiting to be noticed. Here is bending. Here is breath. Here is sun warming. Here is unbearable fire. Here is tightness. All of these perceptions were fresh and fascinating. Fresh and fascinating, even when not pleasant. So what she learned was that opening to this wide array of sensation gave her a powerful means to be with what was unpleasant. And it takes a certain kind of dedication, particularly when the pain or the challenge is really hard. It takes a certain kind of dedication to keep opening the net wider and wider and wider and wider until there is space to meet what's hard in that. Uh, the Buddha gave a beautiful example of putting a salt crystal in a little bit of water and how much that makes it taste um, salty. But if you put a salt, that same salt crystal in a large lake, it can hold it without any impact. So Cohen says, if at any given moment I am aware of 10 different elements, my bottom on the chair, the sound of cars passing outside, the thought of the laundry I have to do, the hum of the air conditioner, an unpleasant stab of sharp knee pain, cool air entering my nostrils, warm air going out, and one of them is pain, then pain will dominate my life. But if I'm aware of a hundred elements, those 10 plus more subtle sensations, the animal presence of other people sitting quietly in the room, the shadow of the lamp against the wall, the brush of my hair against my ear, the pressure of my clothes against my skin. Then pain is merely one of the elements in my consciousness, and that is a pain I can live with. 
So this widening of perspective is really, really, really useful. Our survival minds want to send us into tunnel vision where the only thing that is allowed to be seen in our mental space is problem. If I'm actually in a life-death situation that needs instant reactivity, I probably want problem to be my sole occupation. But if I'm trying to live daily life and then only see problem, not anything else, that makes this living a daily hell instead of a daily living, a daily life. So clearly, having a mind space that can open up to awareness of a hundred different sensations in the midst of significant pain, that's a practice. That takes a lot of training. That takes a lot of patience. Um, a lot of compassionate intention to develop that level of skillfulness. And it might actually feel like that depth of practice is unattainable in the midst of hard times or however things are um, um, when they're difficult. And it's really helpful to notice in reality, times have always been hard in one way or another. There's really nothing unusual about having in this human experience of being in the midst of challenging times. And in the midst of challenging times, people for eons have been learning how to do this practice, this training, whatever degree is necessary to begin to shift experience away from that survival management only mode into an experience of greater resiliency and well-being right in the midst of the difficulty. This is our birthright. This is what people have been doing forever. If we stick with the intention to compassionate practice, this shift will inevitably happen. So formal practice is what she's naming, gave her that stability. I know it does that for me, and I know for many of y'all, you've really experienced and tasted that fruitfulness of formal practice. Sometimes when our systems are triggered, that can feel un, unaccessible. So we need to find some way of bite-sizing a formal practice if we want to be cultivating that kind of skill. Bite-sizing it in a way that makes it accessible. Um, sometimes less is more. Small bits of practice done, a formal practice, a three-minute formal practice three times a day. That's probably, that is a whole lot better than one 30-minute practice once a week. Um, um, so what, what size, what kind of bite sizing makes it accessible? And if we do that, it does begin to not just change um, um, our ability to sit, it really begins to change the quality of our day when we can bring this into it. Here's what Cohen says. With such a mind, life becomes richly textured. Consciously putting a cup on the table and feeling the flat surfaces meet becomes a rare, satisfying, 
just right kind of experience. Washing dishes is not about getting the dishes clean. It's also about feeling the warm, soapy water soothing my arthritic fingers. Doing laundry, I can smell its cleanness and luxuriate in the simple movements of folding, a counterpoint to my complex life. So this is not about someone having rarefied good conditions in order to learn this practice. This was learning to do this in the midst of significant pain. And as she says, she goes on, for people in pain, tapping into this wisdom beyond wisdom is simply how to survive. When we have nothing left to hold on to, we must find comfort and support in the mundane details of our everyday lives, which are less than mundane when they're the reason we're willing to stay alive. This is the upside of impermanence, the shiny uniqueness of, of beings and objects when we begin to notice their comforting presence. When preferences for a particular experience fade, the myriad of things come forward to play, shimmering with suchness. Obviously, flowers and trees do this. This is like my favorite line in her whole article. But so do beer, beer cans and microwaves. You know, how often do we need it to be the perfect day and the beautiful outside in nature? And what is it like instead to just have appreciation for the pen that's sitting on the desk in front of you? Obviously flowers and trees do this, but so do beer cans and microwaves. They're all waiting for our embrace. It is enormously empowering to inhabit the world so vibrant with singularity. So she says after living with her condition for 30 plus years that she now never enters a room without looking for what sources of comfort and ease might be there. And that's not only the recliner or the pillow, but also the light from the window, the homemade vase, or the muffled drone of the air conditioning. All sources of potential comfort and pleasure. She writes how she's learned to bring a sense of companionship and friendliness to items like her toothbrush, her dishes, her spoon, her car. She finds that by taking notice of supports around her all the time, not only is she able to manage her pain better, but life just becomes more interesting, rich and full, even in the midst of the pain. The practice did not make her pain go away, but it freed her to live a life with joy and meaning, even with the pain. So just pause for a moment for your own self. What might this kind of appreciative mindfulness how might this kind of appreciative mindfulness support you? If you were to pause for a moment and let feel into a exploration of mindfulness as a quality of appreciation of what's here. And just notice, do you have a habit of gliding over what's good in your life and only focusing on the hard or the unwanted? When that habit is in play, 
what actually happens for you when you broaden from the heart to what your eyes are taking in. Last night I sat down to watch a Netflix with my daughter. But I didn't just sit down to watch a Netflix with her. I really opened um, my eyes to seeing the beauty and sweetness of this shared moment with her. And it wasn't just being with her, it was also like the really cute cat curled up on the sofa between us. The fact that it was my mom's old red sofa that is really comfortable that we were sitting on. That we had a TV that worked and that even though Netflix did that um, loading thing for a long time before it loaded, it actually did finally load and we were able to watch this wonderful show some group of people up in Canada put together about a fictional Kim's convenience store and the family that runs it, that we got to enjoy that pleasure of their gift. That we had a floor under our feet and a roof over our head. It was cold and rainy and we were dry and warm inside. So when we learn to pause, even in the mundane moments of our life, with our eyes open and the strength of our hearts informing what we're seeing, we start to see into the sacredness that's present in any moment in a different way. I've been um, um, studying a lot of Chris Cullen, a mindfulness teacher, and Christina Feldman. Um, they have a course that you can sign up and take online um, through Tricycle uh, called Universal Empathy. I love this course, love this course. But one thing that um, Chris Cullen says, I've never heard it quite say, said this way before, that there is this interdependence between eyes and heart. The attitude of the heart defines what the eyes will see. That's a helpful, very helpful place to contemplate. How does the attitude of my heart affect what my eyes are able to see? When we learn to open to a strength of heart and open our eyes to the appreciative wonder of what's here, this is just basic ground, grounding resourcing practice. It helps us clear our minds. It helps us function better in our lives. It helps us just feel better and be able to take in what is rich and lovely right in the midst of what is sorrowful and painful and have room for the sacredness of both. So let's pause for a moment. invite you to just contemplate for a moment the interdependence between eyes and heart. Mm. 
what do you know about how the attitude of the heart defines what the eyes will be able to see? What happens in any moment, meaning this moment now, when you open the strength of the heart to meet the moment just as it is? Thank you.